So this was like a Henson quality puppet that I'm seeing in front of my face. I'm holding it in my hands. I just looked at this. I had, didn't do any puppetry at the time. I looked at this puppet and I was like, oh my gosh. Like this is a piece of art. Hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. Today's guest is Adam Krutinger, a public school art teacher, puppeteer, puppet builder, theater set and costume designer, magician, YouTuber, and podcaster. Adam has remained my closest friend from childhood. He is the only person who makes me feel lazy. And in that way, he's consistently pushed me to improve myself and my work. In this episode, we discuss how Adam avoids the trap of being a, quote, jack of all trades and master of none, the value of finding a thought partner, and, of course, his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. We talked for over an hour, which I cut down to the 30-minute conversation you'll find here. There's so much good stuff that was left out of the final edit that I'm going to upload the full, uncut conversation separately as a bonus. So get comfortable. This one's a wild ride. Adam, thank you for being here. Thank you for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. this uh, This is your fault. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> on the audio, there's no way you could hear him nodding and smiling very, very knowingly right now. This is your fault because just a few months ago, I was rolling through Buffalo doing uh, some speaking engagements in the area. And we sat down at what a bar, a restaurant, some halfway between a bar and a restaurant mm-hmm. with some mediocre wings, which is hard to do in Buffalo. And you spent probably an hour. And I mean, you must have actually spent an hour. Mm-hmm. convincing me to start a podcast. Yeah, you were getting pretty frustrated too, yeah. I was. I was getting a little worked up <laughs> by the like, end of it. You're like, I said I'm going to do it, Adam. I'm just too busy now. I said, no, no. And I'm glad you're doing it now, but the only mistake you did was waiting this long. You should have started earlier. That's my, I'm sticking to it. <laughs> you said that three months ago, and I told you I was going to launch in January after the book came out because I wanted the podcast to be a companion to the book. We're angry as we're starting this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I need to address immediately all the different things that you do. And so I'm going to start by rattling these things off. And I'll only be the one that can see your embarrassed face as I do this. So you, you are an art teacher, a puppeteer, a puppet builder, a theater set builder. I don't even know what to call that. You're a magician sometimes. You're a YouTuber, a podcaster, and a duct tape artisan. Well, that duct tape thing is still sticking around, I guess. <laughs> Whenever people bring up that one, I'm like, gosh, that was high school. Come on. <laughs> no, it's all right. I don't, I don't mind. I wear it with pride. Back when I started it, you, all you had was duct tape. You just had a roll of duct tape. But now it's actually become like a crafting thing, a brand thing. They sell like, oh my gosh, they can get cheetah print and duct tape. You can get sheets of duct tape, like like a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11 sized sheets of duct tape like it's a different game if i had those oper- those kind of materials at the time i could have done so much more with it i was just using regular duct tape and doing it years and years and years ago it was starting to become a thing really at the time well i feel like you got into that to set the context because uh the danger of doing an interview with somebody you know really well is that it's really easy for us to talk about things without giving the listener any context so you 
uh, in high school, you were making, you started, was it wallets? Well, let, Is that let, where it let started? Let me go back further then. Let me just go back. Cause I, you know, and every time I tell this, sometimes I accidentally miss something and I'm going to try to get it all. Cause people, you know, cause even, cause the main thing I do now is uh, as a puppeteer, which I'm lumping in the puppet building and the YouTubing and actually the podcast at that point, because it's all about, all those things are about the puppetry that I do. And so often people ask me like, how did you get into that? You know, but I just always just saw myself as someone who's making things. My whole life I was always making things. My mom noticed it real early and really helped me, uh, encouraged me to do all those things, making little inventions at home. I remember one of the first times things that I made that uh, caught my mom's attention where she was like, wow, that's, and I saw the look in her face. She's like, wow, that's really neat. Like, holy cow. And she was so impressed and telling everyone in my bedroom at night, I'd you know, fall asleep in my bed and leave the light on. And it was annoying. So I built this rig and contraption out of string and rubber bands and thumbtacks that I attached to my wall where I could just flick it, the light on and off from my bed. And my mom saw that. She's like, oh, my God, this is genius. It's not like the, the normal things out of sticks and leaves I've been making, which she liked as well. But this seemed a lot more practical to her. So my whole life I've been I've been making things like that. And I always wanted to, for the longest time, I always wanted to be an art teacher. But I always wanted to do other things as well. In the back of my mind, ever since fifth grade, I said, when I grew up, I want to be an art teacher. How I, I started taking all this stuff of that I've been making and doing as a performer seriously, I actually have to thank my wife for that. <laughs> She's uh, really the one that got me into it unknowingly. Two months into the ninth grade, we started dating. Uh, and that was 16 years ago, and we've been together ever since. But anyway, all these things I did was, I again, I blame it because of her, because she was into theater. So she started doing a play that year, and she was a lead in all the plays that we did in high school. So I would join that stuff just to be able to spend time with her and, and to hang out. So like when we were in the musical, like all the leads got their own costumes. But uh, the people in the background, they they didn't get rented costumes. So you had to come up with your own. So that's kind of how I started to teach myself how to sew at the time. Um, and that's also the time I started doing duct tape stuff. I just... I just saw it as a medium to make sculptures and started making flowers. I made a suit out of duct tape, all that kind of stuff. Wallets, I was selling them at the at the musical, selling the... You sold a lot of duct tape flower. Everybody, there was it like one year where every guy was giving their girlfriends and dates to dances your duct tape roses. And they wanted an Adam Krutinger exclusive one. They did. I don't they know if there was anybody else doing it. I decked it out. I did it real nice. I painted them with spray paint. I even put the puff paint around the edges to make them like real nice. Oh, man. The old days, man, when I had time for stuff. But um, <laughs> isn't that like just... Everything today. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, hey, that's remember all when we now. had time for things? Yeah. <laughs> there was another play we did over the summer after ninth grade. Uh, we did Godspell. Again, I was just in the background, and Marie had a one of the. She was one of the soloists for one of the songs, but in that show, one of the they used um, appearing canes. And if you're a magician, you know yeah. exactly what that is. And to someone who I, I had never seen any magic growing up, nothing. I saw that. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so cool. And I remember I walked up to the lady who was the prop lady. Um, I was like, where did you get that? And she's like, oh, we got it locally at Elmwood Magic. 
And, uh, and, and, and from this kid who's also in the show, who was a magician as well, um, was it Steve Tardick or no, his brother, right? Steve Tardick was an R grade. Jason Tardick, right? No, Jason Tardick was an R grade. Steve Tardick. So Jason Tardick's older brother, who was also in that show, I think he was in that show, or he had done shows and connected with them. Wasn't Jason Tardick just on The Bachelor? Jason Tardick was, yeah. So this other kid was a magician in there, and and uh, and I saw these appearing canes. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool! So the prop lady who who like had this stuff, I went up to her. I said, hey, where did you guys get that? She's like, Elmwood Magic. I'm like, oh, like how much were they? Like, was it? She's like, do you want them? I was like, what? And she gave them to me, and that was like a big part of the inspiration of me getting into magic was just playing with those canes because then it just brought me to that world. So I started off with a lot of self-working magic and then just started getting really into sleight of hand. And then that's really also because of that interaction with my wife, which got me into this, is kind of what really connected us. Even though we had known each other, we were like loosely friends, that was really, I would think, what bonded us together the most at the time. You know, there's, there's something about that world, you know, like you and I bonded over magic. In fact, I was really concerned uh, when we went off to college and I, I went away and I really never came home apart from real quick breaks. I, I was one of those that left and went, you know, I, I went eh, four or five hours away, but it was far enough that I really felt like I was gone. I was really concerned that you and I, I was convinced that you and I were actually going to drift completely because I thought the only thing that we really had in common was magic. Uh, that we had never hung out outside of the context of talking about doing, practicing, being around magic. And it, we got to a point, remember, in college where both of us got really just kind of sick of magic, even though jaded, I was actually yeah. starting. Yeah, jaded, exactly. I was starting to make a living doing it, which was really making me sick of it. And you were just kind of starting to get kind of over it. And yeah. there was one time I came back on a break and you and I were hanging out and I said something magic and you went, please, for the love of God, I don't want to talk about or do magic just once. Like you, oh yeah, you were like, you were like 100%. Can we just hang out once without talking about or doing magic? And I remember being like, I don't know if we know how to do that. Because yeah. I didn't know if we had anything. So what's interesting is that I don't know if I would have predicted that you and I would be the ones that actually stayed closest. Because you, I stayed closer to you than anybody else from my childhood. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Because it kind of reminds me of what I've been talking to about my buddy at work. He's got this thing. I think I mentioned to you before. His, uh, he's a teacher. He's actually a, a literacy coach and just a teaching coach in general at my school. But one of his big things he always talks about is having a thought partner. And I just loved that idea so much. And looking back, that's what we've always been. Yeah. Back in those magic days, like I remember, like you'll remember this, like the one time I remember sitting, uh, we, I slept over at your house the one time when we were in high school, we're hanging out and uh, we we said, we're not going to bed until we come up with one new trick. And I remember no the idea trick. what it was. And, and then, <laughs> you know, and, and then I remember like, uh, I think like, like I said, we already got a name for it too. And then I looked down at uh, empty thing of chicken wings. I said, <laughs> the ch and just the bones are sitting there. Said, we're going to call it chicken bones. It's going to be chicken bones. And we're not going to bed until we come up with one trick. And then we came up with one chick that had nothing to do with chicken bones, but it was thus named chicken bones. It but was. Again, it, yeah, it's not I even about. I published it. A couple years later. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I sold I'm still it, waiting, yeah. I'm still waiting for my check, my royalty check in the mail. <laughs> I'll buy a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, that's probably all it made, yeah. So it's less about what we actually made at that time, but I think of that process of just needing 
a thought partner, someone else in that journey with you that doesn't maybe necessarily have the exact same goals of the same um, like physical objective necessarily, but just like someone who has goals, you know, because when we talk now for the last couple of years, when we've been talking about stuff, it's not about magic. You know, sometimes it's about, you know, YouTube or this or that, but I'm telling you about my puppet business and the things that I'm trying to do. And you're telling me about your book or about your, your, your speaking events and things like that, or your other magic shows or how your business is changing and things that I'm trying to do. You know, the, the, the uh, children's book that I'm working on now, I'm already working on my second one. You know, we've been able to help each other with things that I think if we hadn't stayed connected, we never would have reached out to each other and said, hey, Brian, I'm working on this book. Check this out. And you never would have done that to me either. And somehow, even though, you know, I was thinking about it the other day too, like we have such similar interests and in a way such similar paths that also could not be really more different. So you do all these things. You're an, you're you're an art teacher by by day. You know uh, you're a puppeteer, which of course goes into your YouTube channel. Your podcast is about puppeteering. You started with duct tape thing. You do the theater. You do magic. Um, you you are now an author. Like you're, you're working on books. When you're at a party or at a social gathering and you meet someone, and they say, "What do you do?" How do you answer? Honestly, I usually just say, "I'm an art teacher." You know, and and if they're really if they're digging for more tooth, like oh what I say, oh and I do stuff with puppets, you know, and other, and uh, sometimes it just kind of ends there. And if they if they sometimes they're intrigued by it though, and then I just I get more into it because then telling someone you're into puppets uh, can be taken in very interesting ways, you know. So it's like it's just again it's one of those things that people just don't get, and and a lot of them just won't ever get it like there's some people at that even i work with at my school that have no idea like of the puppets and the things i do outside of it outside of the little videos i do with the kids sometimes but they don't understand like what a big part of my life it is let's let's give the listener a chance to understand what a big part of your life it is and uh, i'm actually fuzzy on how it really started like there was like i can remember vividly a time pre-puppets and I can remember vividly when puppets were a huge part of your life. And that in between time, I have like no memory of uh, that developing. Why don't you kind of take us through where the puppets came from and, and what is it that you love about puppeteering and building puppets in that world? So I've been involved in a lot of community theater. I started doing theater in high school because of my wife. I was in this one show in 2008 called Little Shop of Horrors. And I was, so 2008 was a 19, maybe 20, depending on what time of year it was. I don't even remember. And I got cast in the show just to be the arm of the plant. So for anyone who doesn't know, A Little Shop of Horrors is a Broadway musical. It's a, it's a musical where there's this giant man-eating plant that ends up be, growing to be the size of the stage that eats the actors. Um, and so the biggest plant takes the one that we had took three people to manipulate it. One main puppeteer doing the head and the lip sync. And then it also had grabbing branches. So I was pretty much dressed up as a starfish uh, that was the hand of the plant. So I didn't have any puppetry experience. And it kind of wasn't really a puppetry role, but it was. And that was my first experience with puppetry. But that's not what necessarily hooked me with it. It it allowed me to connect with someone. That The one person they hired as a head puppeteer is uh, Zach Homiser, who is 
after that became another dear, dear close friend of mine for years and ever since then. It's been over 10 years now. We've been very good friends. And uh, he had this puppet. This guy was, uh, this guy's obsessed with puppets. He's obsessed with the Muppets. He's obsessed with all that stuff. And believe it or not, you know, I, I shouldn't really reveal this, but I'm not like a crazy Muppet fan. Like I didn't grow up watching it. I didn't know who Fozzie Bear was till I was in college. So that just gives anyone a little frame of mind for how deep I am in the puppetry and, and how little I knew uh, getting into it. So Zach, uh, you know, after rehearsals, uh, we go out and do karaoke and stuff. And he brought this little puppet that he had. He called it Sebastian. It was a little uh, blue frog, kind of uh, like a Hugh Hefner. It had like a smoking jacket. And it was like a wrinkly, kind of like an old man Kermit, but blue he showed me this puppet and I just, it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was actually made by someone who had worked with the Henson company made by Terry Angus, who had worked on Fraggle Rock as a performer and a puppet builder. So this was like a Henson quality puppet that I'm seeing in front of my face. I'm holding it in my hands. I just looked at this. I had, didn't do any puppetry at the time. I looked at this puppet and I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is a piece of art. Like, I had no idea. This is amazing. Like, holy cow. And from that moment, I was like, I have to make one. So that weekend, I went home and I made my first puppet. And even Zach saw it. He's like, wow, that's that's really good. And then I made another puppet and another puppet. And it just kind of kept going. At the time, I was very shy. Like, the fact, the stuff that I'm doing now, the fact that I'm making YouTube videos and running a podcast kind of blows my own mind a little bit because I was so painfully shy growing up. And really, Maria is another one that helped me uh, grow out of that just because she's so the opposite, <laughs> kind of forced me to. But um, it's amazing because every story that you've told so far, every whether it was a short story or a long one, uh, has been so impacted by the people that you just happened to meet along the way. Um, That's my whole story, man, all the way through. These little, like you said, these little chance encounters that have affected me in such a big way. And some people are aware of it and some people aren't aware of it. Like, again, you know, like the lady who handed me those uh, appearing canes never it probably doesn't even remember it. Yeah. But I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Because, and actually that, I think being the magician made me a more confident puppet, puppeteer. And I think I'm realizing this right now. Because as a magician, for the most part, you perform by yourself. And if I had just started puppetry, I don't know if I would have had necessarily the confidence to perform by myself. I don't think either of us realized it at the time, but like you were saying about how being, you know, painfully shy, like you, you can't, it's almost a, kind of a miracle that you're doing what you're doing now. Well, Maybe. especially with my speech back then, which was horrendous. Like you, I remember even a lot of time talking to you, you're like, you just, you, 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 and you'd be so blunt too. You'd be like, you just said like a whole paragraph and I didn't understand one word you just said. <laughs> when we I'd met, like, I thought, oh, God. When, when we met, I, I did, I remember, I remember desperately trying to understand what you were saying. What, did you just always have, uh, is it a speech impediment or is it? Yeah, that's just the best thing I could call it. And uh, I'm sure listeners can hear a trace of it now. People who, who know me now, like you probably don't notice it just because you're just used to the way that I talk. But for the longest time, uh, the letter R, um, I just, it was just like non-existent. I, re I remember that. Although I, I, I gotta tell you, when, when Lindsay met you for the first time a, a few years ago, and I had, I had actually prepped her and said, you might have trouble understanding Adam when you first meet him, you know, whatever, but she didn't. And so I think you're, I think it's, it's mostly gone away. She was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I had no trouble understanding him. 
really curious, and I don't think I've ever asked you this in quite this way. You're the second oldest of nine kids. Your house growing up was bananas, my friend. I've always wondered to what extent or how did being the second oldest of nine impact your life or impact your career? Hmm. I I would just say it's given me a lot of patience. Like it really has, because that's one thing that I know people have told me over the years about, you know, when I'm in a magic show for for kids' birthdays and all the or and all these screaming kids and stuff, or uh, you know, doing an assembly show at a school and all these screaming kids are like, How do you deal with this? I'm like, this is what how I used to fall asleep to this noise. Like this is what I'm used to. And it really just like and even like even if if as a teacher, if I have a student that's being stubborn, there's no amount of stubbornness that can get to me that I haven't gotten from my brothers and sisters growing up. To sincerely get me upset about something takes some hard work. So the purpose of this whole show, we have bounced around it a ton of times over the course of this episode. I think more than any other um, more than any other episode that I've recorded with anybody, we've really hit on that over and over and over, kind of chance encounters, lasting impact. Is there, you, you've mentioned obviously Maria, Maria had such a profound impact on your professional life, not just your personal one in a way that no one could have expected. And you mentioned the the lady with the magic and um, I forget the person's name with the, uh, the puppets. Uh, Zach, the yeah. Zach uh, with the puppets. Do you have, is there one story of someone is there a story that just really, when you single it out, it stands out as like kind of a... Um, yeah, I think I got one. Because, uh, you know, because like I said, I always wanted to be an art teacher ever since I was in fifth grade. But there's also other things I wanted to do because I started doing magic, you know. And when I started doing magic and doing it pretty seriously, my mom probably wondered like, oh, is he going to do this instead? Like, no, in the back of my head, I still wanted to be an art teacher. And then and then in doing restaurant magic, I think me and you had talked about it. Like, wouldn't it be cool to open up a restaurant? And then uh, I mentioned that to my mom. My mom got scared. She's like, oh, my gosh. She's like, because my mom's older brother uh, or younger brother worked in a restaurant and like you're working holidays she's like it's a grueling thing she's like don't do it don't do it and she got scared so what she did is she went to my little sister's school and uh she talked to their art teacher and said do you mind if my son comes and uh, does some volunteering and you know sees what you do with the kids you know he said sure and i and my mom asked me oh can you go help out at the art club i'm like sure and then that's how i met thomas paul asklar who I know you know very well because he was your art teacher as well. He was my art teacher in elementary school. My memory is that he is 25 feet tall. He's, <laughs> he's, he is humongous. He, he is like, just, just like physically a big guy. He's not like overweight. Or he's like, like super. And I'm a tall guy too. I'm over six feet tall. And this guy towers over you. Okay. His hands are like Wreck-It Ralph hands. They're humongous. <laughs> and at the time, he had a he had a ponytail down to the middle of his back, too. Yeah, yeah. And he's just a gentle giant. And just the nicest guy. So talented. What was most inspiring to me about him is, uh, you know, I don't even know why before that I necessarily wanted to be an art teacher because... I didn't have a bad art experience growing up, but I really didn't have that memorable of a one. Because uh, I, I, though my my siblings had Tom as a uh, art teacher, I didn't because we had moved to this district after I had already graduated elementary school. But just seeing this guy, he just made art so fun for everybody. 
even for people who thought they didn't like art, you know, and that really made me want to do that, make make kids excited about doing art, you know, and actually back then, I think again, I was in 10th grade, maybe ninth grade. And he said, and I said, I want to be an art teacher too. He's like, when you're student teaching, I want you to be uh, my student teacher. I'm like, okay. I didn't even know what that was. (laughs) College is so far from my mind at that point. And then, you know, I went, I went to to college for art education. Then, you know, I did all my gen ed, did all this. And then at this point, probably close to what, close to eight years later, I'm like, hey, remember when you said you wanted me to be your, you said you wanted me to be your student teacher? Like, it's time. He's like, oh, I stopped taking student teachers. He's like, but I'll do it. I'll do it. (laughs) Going to school for art education, I had to do so many observations of other teachers to see like, and do all these write-ups and this and that. You know, none of them were, I wouldn't say that they were bad teachers, but they just didn't have the same passion that he had. And there's one question I asked every single art teacher that I observed, and which is over 20 of them, many of them in, in this area. I asked them, do you still make your own art? None of them. None of them still made their own art. Some of the best answer I would get is I, they'd say like, oh, I'm going to start doing my own art when I retire or things like that. And I'm just like, wow, that's crazy. I just couldn't even believe it. But Tom Asklar, Thomas Paul Asklar, is the only person I had met who was making their own art and consistently and regularly. The guy's got his own studio that's separate from his house and is, is painting in it weekly, doing commissions. He's got art all over the world, you know, and that's what I try to emulate too. Now, I'm not doing the same traditional type of art of doing a canvas painting and things like that, but that's what I see the puppetry as, you know, and especially as a teacher, I think we need to model it, not just in teaching in the classroom. Some of my students follow me on YouTube too, and they're like, oh my gosh, look at this. Look how many subscribers you have. Ah!" But I'm glad that they're seeing me actually make art. It's almost a, such a sad commentary on the fact that you couldn't find a single art teacher who was still making their own art. I, I just wonder to what extent that happens over time to anybody who decides to make art their living. And that might inform why you've been so insistent on spreading out the different things that you do. I remember a long time ago asking you, you know, why don't you want to do magic for a living? Like when both of us were like making money doing it at the beginning and it was like, hey, like both of us could have made a living as a magician. And I was like, 100%, I'm going to be a magician for a living. And you were like, there's no way. You were right very early on. You're like, I'm happy to make money doing it right now. It's helping to put me through college and whatever, but you didn't want to do it. And your answer was always the same. Anytime I asked you and I kept pushing you on it, it was, I don't want to have to do it. Yep, exactly. You know, because my other buddy puts phrases it this way. I don't want to be over a barrel. And and I love the way that he phrases that because uh, like even for puppet building, even for doing a magic shows, I don't want to do a show. I don't want to make a puppet because I have to pay my bill. I never want to do that. I never want to have to do my art, whatever it is, performance or physical making of art because I need the money. I'll never do it. I turn down decent, you know, gigs all the time. I want to believe in the project and I want to do it because I want to do it or else it's going to be grueling and I'm not going to like it. I have so many people fall out of love with it. And that's maybe what a lot of those other art teachers did. You know, I bet you nobody goes into it with bad intentions, I don't think. You know, they probably just grew out of their art. It became maybe maybe after teaching art for a long time, they, they got 
sick of it. And it just became a paycheck to them and they didn't want to look at art when they got home. In general, I, I do like doing commissions once in a while, but main, mainly I build this stuff for myself. You know, I do my own shows. We do our own things. And that's what I like doing. Let me pull this back in to close out uh, to close out this episode. And I have a feeling that you're going to be one of those uh, guests that's going to have to come on like once a season so we can just touch base with things like this. Yeah. Uh, I would not be doing my job interviewing you if I did not ask you at least something about your insane viral video. Because oh, if there's one thing that anybody would actually know you for that's listening to this and maybe not know your name, it's this video. Uh, do you want me to describe it or do you want to describe it? Yes, because please. I feel like this is something you're trying to distance yourself from. A <laughs> no, I'm not. Bit. I'm not trying to. No? Dis you know, honestly, okay. when you said that, I completely forgot what you were talking about. I'm like, which one? Of the which oh, one? Yeah. The one with 25 million views. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's a, oh, my. I wish I had like a penny for each one. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The The video essentially is the one that actually went viral, properly viral, is a shortened version of the original video. The original video was- About seven minutes long. Yeah, about seven minutes long. You uploaded it to Facebook and it was showing the course of, what was it, three weeks, four weeks? It was over the span of- 15 days. 15 days. <laughs> and in the span of 15 days, you made Maria, your wife's uh, fiance at the time, her wedding dress from scratch, without her ever seeing it and got it on her on the day of your wedding without her seeing it. She saw it for the first time, took the blindfold off and saw it in a mirror on her for the first time hours before you guys got married, a wedding that yep. I was I was at. This was happening backstage while I was sitting in the, the audience. And then, uh, uh, what was it? Was it George Takei? George Takei, yeah. He, he picked it up, edited into a shorter, more you know easily digestible version of it. And that like yeah, three minute- like three minute, three minute version, version like 25 or 30 million views or something stupid that you just stop counting at some point. How did that affect you? What What are your thoughts about having a video that arguably is a thing you're actually most known for now have nothing to do with basically your work in any way? I think it does. You know, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, it, it kind of, I think it's in a way probably the best example of my work. In every sense of, in the sense of how I work, the kind of work I do, the types of skills it takes to even do something like that. Because, you know, first of all, some people are like, oh, he's a procrastinator because I waited until 15 days before. But, you know, a lot of good artists would probably relate to this. Like I do, I, I feel like I do some of my best work under pressure. You know, some of the best inspiration I have starts at two in the morning and, and, you know, days or hours, depending on the project, before the deadline is due. I had known I was going to be making her wedding dress for a year because uh, I we, we decided, yep, I'm going to make it. And then she said, oh, I don't want to see it until the day of the wedding. I was like, OK. And then it started getting closer <laughs> and closer and closer. And then also some life stuff happened, too. Like I started a brand new job a, a month before you know, the wedding as well. And so I had, I was trying to get ready with a new job and the, 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 I'm talking to my coworkers like, yeah, we're getting married soon. I'm making her dress like, wow, you're making her dress. When are you getting married? I'm like, you know, in two, you know, three weeks. Like how, you know, is it almost done? Like I, I didn't even pick out the fabric yet, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, no, I just, you know, it's again, it's just, it's, uh, also it's the way that I just do art too. The way almost everything I build, the puppets, uh, any costumes, any other fashion design stuff, a painting, you know, I am so inspired by the materials and tools that I have, you know, because I'm not, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't necessarily do a sketch of the dress. I tried doing some sketches of the dresses and it influenced it a little bit. But what told the story was, you know, grabbing that fabric. Oh, yeah, this is it. Oh, this fabric moves well this way. Well, if I cut it this way, you know, I'll do that. And I think you can kind of see that in the process. And, and also some people, because the way that it was edited uh, for the George Decay release version, it kind of changed the narrative a little bit, um, which made some people confused by it. Like my reason for even filming it and doing it. And the reason was is because because she wasn't going to see it until the day of, I wanted to share, you know, the making of it with her. You know, the, when I first uploaded it, I don't remember if I changed the name to it or not, but it was like, it was called For My Wife. So it was really, a, the, not only was the the dress, you know, a gift for her, but the video was also a gift for her too, which is, I guess, my guess is maybe that's kind of why people responded to it because it was, you know, I hope a sincere thing that I did for her. Because here's the thing too. I remember seeing some of the comments and someone says, what a shame that he used his wedding to, to make a viral video. And, <laughs> and I remember that's one of the few that I made a mistake of commenting to. I was like, you don't plan a viral video. <laughs> that's not the way it works. If I, if I could do that, I'd make all my videos viral. Like that is just not the way that it works. Well, I got to tell you, I love full, full circle moments, but we started this conversation almost an hour ago and you talked right away. Your instinct was immediately to start talking about Maria and the impact that she, uh, meeting her had on you, your life, but also your work. And it, to me, I love this moment that just clicked, which is now present, like within the last year, like present day, the biggest thing that's actually propelling your career forward right now, like the biggest thing thing that's happening is a video that went viral about you giving something back to her using the art that she put you on the path to. That's amazing to me. And uh, I think that's a perfect place to end. So glad you're still here. Before you start YouTubing Muppet videos, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, find a thought partner. No matter what field you're in, connect with someone you can bounce ideas off of and generously return the favor. Second, Adam believes we should always model positive behavior for those we seek to serve, even when they're not looking. Because in today's world, they probably are. And finally, like the fabric in Maria's dress, sometimes you need to actually start doing something before you're really ready because it's in the doing that you find inspiration. If you're interested in puppetry or the creative arts in general, definitely check out Adam's podcast, Puppet Tears, at puppetteers.com. That's two T's. If you want to hear the full, unedited, uncut bonus episode with over 30 minutes of additional content, sign up for the One New Person email list at brianmillerspeaks.com slash one new person. All the links will also be in the show notes of this episode on onenewperson.com. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time. 